You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Traffic chaos in downtown Vancouver this afternoon. This is a live shot of the area around Canada Place where hundreds of truckers are protesting the lack of action to help BC's struggling forest industry. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Right now, about 230 trucks are parked in downtown Vancouver, getting the attention of municipal and provincial leaders. That convoy made up of drivers from the forest industry left Merritt this morning and rolled into town for the annual Union of BC Municipalities Convention. Our Aaron MacArthur is there for us tonight. The truckers, Aaron, are hoping their message for help is heard loud and clear. Yeah. Chris, loud, loud and clear. It's uh, amazing how loud 230 truckers can be when they're all on their horns at the same time. Their message is clear. The forest industry, the logging industry, and as a result, parts of rural British Columbia are dying and they need help. It was a cacophony of noise. The trucks rolled through Vancouver, horns blaring, finishing their drive from Merritt. Hundreds of logging truck owners and contractors furious about what is happening to their livelihoods. How important is it to do this? Very important. More important than anything I've done in my life. I've been at this for 40 years. We finally had enough. The trucks clogging the streets in Coal Harbor here to send a message. Politicians inside at the UBCM joining in on that message. Rural British Columbia, tired of government, ignoring their concerns. We need the government to listen to us. They, d they don't seem to understand rural BC and, and the fact that we are the breadbasket, whether it be mining, ranching, uh, forestry. Uh, that's where the revenue comes from. The NDP has set aside $69 million to deal with job loss and retraining in the forest sector, pulling money out of a rural development fund to make it happen. The industry facing slumping U.S. home starts, increased tariffs, and a worldwide economic slowdown. The government says the money is a short-term fix to a much longer structural problem. Stumpage fees are uh, a part of what we're uh, looking at in, in the overall solution, but uh, political intervention in the stumpage system at this point would cause more damage uh, than, than good. It doesn't matter if that money is available now, it might be too late. Some of these operators haven't worked since February. Most have hundreds of thousands of dollars tied up in equipment or employees. Those employees have already missed payments. These guys aren't working. Some of them have just bought in houses and uh, the crunch come down. They don't know how they're gonna, how they're gonna keep, keep going. Support from the public and from politicians on display Wednesday afternoon, but loggers are looking for more than just platitudes. A job, a way to pay their bills and support their communities, far more important than any moral victory achieved by the rally. Aaron, we saw those crowds down there uh, curbside. What's your sense of the support for the protest uh, down there and, and more importantly from government? Are they going to get what they asked for? You know, I got a sense from the people on the street, a, a great deal of support for what the loggers are going through. And I think the loggers themselves were overwhelmed by the amount of support on the street. At one point, I mean, the, the pedestrians were blocking uh, waterfront here, uh, in, never mind the trucks. Uh, 
politicians certainly tripping over themselves to get into this, make sure their mugs are on TV, that they're getting, uh, showing that they're supporting the logging industry. And I think over, overall, the loggers just wanted to get their message through to the government and at least be listened to. Doug Donaldson said he's willing to listen, he's willing to have short-term solutions. It's those long-term solutions that are going to be harder to come by. And we'll see if they get what they need. Aaron MacArthur, thanks very much. Down in Vancouver for us. That's not the only action happening outside the UBCM tonight. A cocktail reception is getting underway at this hour and drawing protest. Our Jordan Armstrong is live outside the Fairmont Waterfront Hotel where the gala is taking place. Jordan, there are protesters there as well, not happy that China is sponsoring this event. That's exactly right, Sophie. More than a dozen protesters are here right now. They're holding signs that take aim at China's human rights record. And in a few moments, they plan to go inside to try and deliver a symbolic care package for two Canadians jailed in China for months now. A number of local politicians have said they will not attend this reception, including the mayor of White Rock and all of his councillors. Tonight's Chinese reception could be the last because this morning nearly two-thirds of UBCM delegates voted against foreign governments funding future social gatherings for mayors and councillors. I'm pleased. It, it kind of leads me to scratch my head that the other people, you know, not an insignificant minority, think that it's okay. Port Coquitlam's mayor is leading the boycott of the optional event. He says it is wrong for local politicians to wine and dine on the Chinese dime at a time when relations are at an historic low. I mean, we've got two of our fellow citizens being held hostage by China. He's referring to the jailing of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, held for months on vague state security charges. The federal government has demanded the men be released. But the mayor of Richmond, whose population is 53% Chinese, is in no hurry to defend the detained Canadians. You're just assuming there's something wrong with it when I don't believe that any of us knows exactly what these people have or haven't done. The Canadian government itself has expressed concerns about that. Are you more inclined, though, to believe China? No, I'm not, I'm not believing anybody. I'm just saying that we don't know what exactly they've done. Something Brody has made up his mind on is the Chinese reception for delegates. He plans to go. When you go tonight, will you be bringing up civil rights and human rights concerns? Well, no, it's, it's just a social reception. Perhaps he'll run into Victoria's Lisa Helps. Uh, yes, uh, I will be going there tonight. And Langley Township's Jack Froze. I have no problem. I'll probably pop in. Surrey's Doug McCallum won't be there. We're not going to go to the China um, reception. And especially not Port Coquitlam's Brad West. At some point, you need to be willing to take a stand for Canadian values that are more important than a dollar from the government of China. So delegates who do attend tonight get this gift bag from the Chinese consulate inside. It has a T-shirt with the Chinese and Canadian flags. And on the other side, if I flip it over here, it has a panda and a beaver holding hands. says friendship between China and Canada. Again, it all starts at 6.30. We'll keep you posted who decides to attend and who decides to boycott this event. Chris and Sophie, back to you. All right, Jordan, thanks for that. Trial is underway for a man accused of killing a Vancouver couple in their Marpole home two years ago. Rocky Rambo Waynam Cam has pleaded not guilty to two counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of 68-year-old Richard Jones and 65-year-old Diana Ma Jones. Ramina Dea has more on the new information revealed in opening arguments 
And we should warn you, the details of this case are disturbing. Diana Ma Jones never showed up for work September 27, 2017, out of character for the occupational therapist. So Anthony Purcell, a colleague, volunteered to check on her. Purcell testified what he saw at Ma Jones's Marpole home was horrific. Bloody footprints inside, obvious signs of a struggle, splatters of blood on the cupboards. The bodies of Ma Jones and her husband, Richard Jones, dragged from the kitchen to the bathroom, where they were discovered in the shower stall. The water still running, says Crown. The accused, Rocky Ramble, Wayne Nam Cam, lived less than a kilometer away. Crown told the court the accused purchased a hatchet, gardening gloves and a baseball cap from Canadian Tire about two weeks before the couple was found dead. The victim's newspaper delivery man testified, I saw a knife on the path. On the other side of the bush, I noticed a small axe. Jones, who used a walker, suffered more than 100 wounds. And Ma Jones suffered blood loss from a laceration to the carotid artery, says Crown. Mulligan told the court the couple's DNA was found on the hatchet and the baseball hat, adding that Cam's DNA matched the DNA discovered under Ma Jones's fingernails. Crown's theory, the items purchased at Canadian Tire were bought with intent to kill someone, but there's no relationship between the accused and the victims. Multiple witnesses are expected to take the stand Thursday, including the accused's roommate and several officers who were the first on scene. Chris. Thank you, Romina. A South Surrey mother convicted of killing her her eight-year-old daughter is appealing her conviction. Earlier this month, Lisa Batstone was found guilty of killing her daughter, Tegan, and sentenced to at least 15 years in prison before being eligible for parole. Crown counsel confirming an appeal against both that sentence and the initial verdict had been filed. The defense is requesting Batstone be granted a new trial or be convicted of the lesser charge of manslaughter. And an Okanagan man has pleaded guilty in the death of a Belgian tourist. The body of 28-year-old Amelie Sakalis was found near Highway 1 north of Boston Bar in August of 2018. 27-year-old 20, Sean McKenzie was arrested at the scene, initially released, but later charged with first-degree murder in connection with Amelie's death. This week, McKenzie pleaded guilty to one count of second-degree murder. His sentencing is scheduled for November 19th. An unprovoked and violent assault on an Abbotsford nurse has the union calling for immediate action to protect hospital staff. The nurse is now recovering from a broken jaw and serious head and back injuries. Nadia Stewart explains what happened and the changes the union wants immediately to ensure nurses' safety. Abbotsford Regional Hospital, the scene of the latest violent attack where the victim is a nurse. It happened at around 2 o'clock early Tuesday morning. A nurse went in to check on a patient already identified as someone showing violent behavior. The perpetrator of the violence picked up an exercise uh, tool uh, and hit the nurse uh, very hard across the face, uh, throwing her back into the wall. Leaving the nurse with serious, life-altering injuries. This nurse now has a broken upper jaw, broken cheekbone, has had staples and sutures, all of her teeth are damaged. This just days after the BC Nurses Union renewed its call for change in the Abbotsford Regional Hospital's emergency department, saying conditions there are deteriorating, citing the high admission numbers, overcrowding, high acuity patients and chronic short staffing. 
but the incident highlights a bigger problem. One nurse a day in this province reports a serious violent events to WorkSafe. Both the ministry and Fraser Health say steps are being taken to make the Abbotsford ER safer. None of us are at our best when we go to hospital for obvious reasons, but we have to ensure that uh, there's no tolerance for violence. The province is spending millions to rebuild the ER here, but the BCNE was calling for specially trained safety officers to be installed in all BC hospitals. A successful pilot project saw violent incidents decrease at the hospital in Kelowna when the officers were on duty. Nurses felt much safer. These people worked as part of the team. And the health authority has continued uh, those safety officer positions working in the emergency room. Neither Fraser Health or the ministry would immediately comment on expanding the pilot. The BCNU says until more drastic measures are taken, nurses continue to be at risk. Nadia Stewart, Global News. BC's Auditor General is resigning. Carol Bellringer's departure announced in a short statement issued today. Our Richard Zussman is live in Victoria with more on what we've learned about why Bellringer is leaving. It seems sudden, Richard. It is, Sophie. She's been serving in this position since 2014. She was supposed to stay until 2021, but she's now leaving early. And one of the thoughts is that Bellringer has decided to do this because of a conflict going on with Speaker Daryl Plekis. Last week, Bellringer released a high-profile report about the expenditures in the B.C. legislature. It was criticized by Speaker Plekis for not being a forensic audit. There were also concerns in the past from Plekis that the audit should be done outside of the province, but Bellringer insisted that she do it. You mentioned a very short statement. Let me read to you part of that statement that was sent from Bellringer today. The Office of the Auditor General has a strong workforce in place to support changes and its highly professional skilled staff will ensure that the important work of the office continues as outlined in the operational service and coverage plans. Mike Farnworth, the House leader for the government today, was asked whether he believes the resignation has to do with disagreements with the Speaker. He wouldn't go that far, but hopes that the work Bellringer plans on doing will continue with a new Auditor General. My expectation is, is the work that uh, started under her uh, will continue. Uh, she has indicated that uh, she intends to stay on until uh, the end of the year and that uh, that, that work is, uh, is going to continue. The Speaker's office has not commented yet, uh, Sophie, but they plan to say more potentially tomorrow. Right now, though, transit police are releasing surveillance video, hoping someone will be able to identify a suspect seen ripping a cell phone straight from the hands of a young man with disabilities. Grace Key has more on where it happened and the silver lining to the story, too. This security video captures a woman grabbing a cell phone out of the hands of a disabled man in a wheelchair. Paralyzed on the left side, he's unable to hold on to it. A woman came to me and tried to grab my phone. It happened 7.30 in the morning on September 12th on the 96B line as the bus stopped in the area of 80th Avenue and King George Boulevard in Surrey. 19-year-old Nathan Saluna yelled for help, but the bus driver wasn't able to hear him. I had questions like, what are you trying to do to me? 
After a brief struggle, the suspect ran off the bus with the phone. Nathan was on his way to Kwatlin Polytechnic University, where he's working to improve his independence and job skills. Transit police were called, but they did much more than investigate. The investigating officers were, were moved by this. Given the circumstances, they actually pitched in their own money to, uh, to help pay off these existing debt that, the, uh, that this young man had on the phone. Paying off the debt will allow Nathan to get a new phone that he needs to communicate with his mother and help him at school. I was very happy because I wasn't expecting that kind of help. Many would think this crime to be unforgivable, but not Nathan's mother. People, we, we don't have money, we are really desperate to do something, but right. yeah, we forgive her what she did to my son. If you recognize this woman or witness the incident, you're asked to call Transit Police. Grace Key, Global News. The BC Teachers Federation is urging parents of some elementary school students to excuse them from taking the Foundation Skills Assessment Test. That test is designed to evaluate literacy and numeracy skills. But John Hua tells us why the union feels it's an unreliable method of measuring progress. You are about to take the most important test of your lives. Standardized testing has been a staple in the school system for years. But the BC Teachers Federation has been trying for decades to expel the Foundation Skills Assessment, or FSA, used to determine if teachers, schools, and the overall educational system makes the grade. And it's a one-shot test. It's not a complete picture about how students are doing. And so, you know, I have lots of students that have test anxiety, and it seems like a needless stressor. Listen carefully. Still, every year, students in grade 4 and 7 are asked to take the test. Now the FSA fight coming in the form of conflicting letters. School board saying students must take it. The BCTF telling parents they have the right to let their children opt out. It's a snapshot of one day in time. I'm not really sure what the benefit is. It doesn't affect whether they're going to pass that grade or not, but it's a good to understand how the education system is working. One of the biggest problems for teachers, outside sources like the Fraser Institute, using the scores to rate schools. And that's very, very dejecting for, for not only teachers, but also families to see their schools ranked uh, in such a negative way. The Ministry of Education expressing regret about the rankings, but standing by the FSA stating, assessments help to make better decisions for students with daily planning, interventions, additional supports and resource allocation. We thought with a change of government, there might be a change in approach. Teachers have much more of a rich knowledge of how students are doing in their classrooms. With the government sticking to the standardized test, the BCTF will have to rely on parents to say pencils down to make their point. John Hua, Global News. Quickly returning to our top story now, a convoy of trucks, hundreds of them, snarling traffic in Vancouver's downtown core. The truckers are drawing attention to the plight of BC's embattled forestry sector. Aaron MacArthur is on the story. He joins us with the latest on the situation right now. Aaron, still a crowd down there, it looks like. Still a crowd down here, Sophie. Yeah, um, you know, we mentioned they left from Merritt this morning, but it was really all over the province that loggers gave up what they were doing and came down here. I'm with the uh, Quinnell Williams Lake crew in the background here. And, and joining me is Ar Arlie Chrisman. He's a, a log hauler. This has been an overwhelming experience. I mean, what does this crisis in the forest industry mean for you personally? 
Uh, personally, it um, directly affects my family, my colleagues' families, um, people in the community that we don't even know that, that we try to support with, um, you know, sponsorship dollars and things. Um, they aren't there. We're not working. We, we have been working. It's been a slower year for us. Um, this year, we're, or this week, we're curtailed. So it's, we're here. The, the level of support, I think, has been amazing across the province. I mean, you were describing great scenes all the way down from Merritt this morning. Yeah, fantastic. Um, the people that have organized this, put it on. The, the people that were from Chilliwack in, I thought there would be very little support. Who knows what we're doing? Every exit, every overpass, there was people holding signs, thumbs up, taking video. Um, just probably one of the best drives of my life. Your voice being heard finally. Yeah, yeah, All yeah, right. exactly. Well, it's uh, it's wrapping up 230. 228, 230 trucks at last count. They're all ready to go home and, and call it a day. Chris, Sophie? Could be disruptive uh, on the highway as they do. And let's hope that the government does hear them. Thanks very much for that. Uh, Aaron MacArthur reporting from downtown Vancouver. We'll get the latest on what's going on. And at least in the federal uh, election right now, Elizabeth May unveiled her Green Party's costed election platform today, becoming the first party to do so. Global's Shalima Maharaj has a closer look at where the bulk of that spending will be focused and what the other leaders were promising today. Speaking to supporters Wednesday, Elizabeth May released her party's costed platform. The lion's share of the money earmarked for implementing universal pharmacare. But it's essential. We have to do it. The cost for the first year is pegged at close to $27 billion, rising steadily to just over $31 billion by 2024-2025. We are not ideological about balanced budgets, but we do know that it matters to Canadians. And Greens believe in living within our means economically and ecologically, so we come to balance in five years. Addressing a crowd in Quebec, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer unveiled details for a Green Homes tax credit. This two-year program will encourage Canadians to renovate their homes with emission-reducing technologies. Scheer says Canadians can receive a 20% refundable credit on their income tax for environmentally friendly upgrades to their homes when they spend more than $1,000 up to $20,000. It could mean savings of up to $3,800 on your green renovations each and every year. Starting his day in B.C., Liberal leader Justin Trudeau also spoke of incentivizing green renovations. We will introduce a new interest-free loan of up to $40,000 for homeowners and landlords who want to make their homes more energy efficient. Housing affordability, meanwhile, was at the top of the priority list for NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. We would add an additional 15% foreign buyers tax to tackle the out-of-control skyrocketing price of housing. Singh also pledging to invest $20 million towards the creation of an anti-money laundering unit for the RCMP. Shalima Maharaj, Global News. And the leader of the People's Party of Canada, Maxime Bernier, was greeted by a small group of protesters when he arrived at a Surrey Board of Trade event this morning. The People's Party of Canada represents uh, anti-migrant and bigoted policies. Bernier has been criticized for his far-right policies and for allegedly attracting supporters with racist views. The Quebec MP, who says he is opposed to mass migration but supports refugees, 
told the crowd there is a growing need in Canada for open discussion on immigration issues. We're in a democratic country and free speech is there and every Canadian must have the right to express their opinion on the important subject for the future of our country. Bernier also told attendees at the event that fewer immigrants coming to large cities like Vancouver and Toronto would mean less pressure on the housing markets there. Now, some troubling findings from Consumer Protection BC when it comes to home inspections. The provincial regulator works with home inspectors, but in a recent check on their contracts, many home buyers were exposed to huge risks that jeopardized their investment. Here to tell us more is our Consumer Matters reporter, Andrea. Ann? Mm-hmm. Certainly cause for concern tonight. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Chris. Over the last several months, Consumer Protection BC investigated a number of home inspectors. In the 40 cases they looked at, the provincial regulator says one in two contracts were violating the law and putting home buyers at risk. It turns out, based on the regulator's report, half of the home inspection contracts either didn't include the required information or had liability limiting clauses that should not be there putting the consumer at risk. By law, a home inspection contract must state exactly what is covered in the home inspection. Say whether the home inspector will inspect for things like mold or asbestos. Include specifics on whether invasive procedures will be used, if any, and not have information that limits the liability or amount of liability of the home inspector. Getting a home inspection is a choice. It helps people make a decision when making a very large investment. So it's really important to know what the rules are out there to protect them. And one of them is to really look at all the details in their contract so that they understand what they're going to get from the contract. And that also helps the home inspector because then there's clear communication between both parties. So again, just repeat, read through the contract and do your due diligence. If you believe a home inspector has violated the law, then you can always reach out to Consumer Protection BC to investigate since they are the regulator in this province. And you, if, if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. It's a joke. Impeachment for that? Although I heard there's a, there's a rumor out they want the first conversation. It was beautiful. It was just a perfect conversation. President Donald Trump pushing back tonight against the bombshell release of notes from a phone call he had with Ukraine's president. Many believe it's evidence that Trump pressured the leader to investigate the son of rival Joe Biden. All this prompting impeachment proceedings by the Democrats. And Trump today met with the Ukrainian president in New York, claiming he's done nothing wrong. Our reporters from NBC News. President Trump in a late-day news conference again denying the claim at the heart of a congressional impeachment inquiry that he pressured a foreign power for political gain. No push, no pressure, no nothing. It's all a hoax, folks. It's all a big hoax. Earlier, Ukraine's president, the man at the other end of the controversial phone call, issuing a similar denial. Nobody pushed it. Pushed me. Yes. In other words, no pressure. And after resistance from the White House, a whistleblower complaint about the phone call was released to Congress, reviewed by members of the Intelligence Committee. Today, the White House released its official account of that call. The notes show immediately after President Zelensky said he wanted to buy American missiles, President Trump said, quote, I would like you to do us a favor, though, and went on to make a series of requests, including Ukraine's help investigating former Vice President Joe Biden and his son. This is how a mafia boss talks. 
What have you done for us? We've done so much for you, but there's not much reciprocity. The notes also show the president repeatedly urged President Zelensky to coordinate the investigations with Attorney General William Barr and his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. If the president gets away with this, I'm not sure what checks and balances remain. Republicans reading the same words, but seeing no wrongdoing. From my point of view, to impeach any president over a phone call like this would be insane. It turned out to be a nothing call. A call that's made him only the fourth president in history to face a threat of impeachment. Because you're so anxious, we're going to let you stay. Susan McGinnis, NBC News, Washington. Thank you, Mr. Mattel is launching a new gender-neutral line of dolls. The company that launched Barbies back in 1959 says the Creatable World dolls will come with options that will allow kids to change their look. That will include accessories, clothes and wigs that are both male and female presenting. The Creatable World line consists of six different kits available in a variety of skin tones. What a spectacle at the concert last night, and we're not even talking about Elton John. A life-changing experience for two people who managed to snag last-minute tickets. Coming up right after the weather. Great show and great way to cap off the three shows that he had in Vancouver. Right. Uh, Christy Gordon joins us now with a look at our weather forecast. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, it's not reaction to you specifically. <laughs> Thanks, so the word soaker. I feel so much better about that. <laughs> yes. So uh, the light rain has developed in some areas. For the most part, we haven't seen it today, but the soaker is still yet to push in, and we will see it mainly overnight tonight. So here's a look at it: 15 to 25 millimeters, and then it will push out quite quickly, and we should be enjoying sunshine tomorrow. However, wind conditions are expected. There's that system moving very quickly all across southern BC, sunshine by the afternoon. But as the front moves across tonight, even in behind it, while we're enjoying that sunshine, we are expecting gusty winds. So we're talking about gusts in the 50 to 60 kilometer an hour range, just below warning criteria. And then late Thursday into our Friday morning, the freezing levels begin to drop. The real cold air will push in over the weekend, but we have the chance of seeing snow over higher terrain. That's again Thursday night into our Friday. Freezing levels will drop. So if you're doing any traveling east of Hope, make sure you're aware of this. Potential for snow over higher elevations. What does this mean? Well, you need winter tires. It's recommended that anytime you have temperatures below 7 degrees, you have tires with these labels. The winter tire requirements don't go into effect until October 1st. But nonetheless, with the conditions we're expecting this weekend, or starting uh, Thursday night, we have that. I do recommend that you have those tires nonetheless. Okay, so there's your Thursday forecast. These areas seen the rainfall mainly later in the day, whereas across the south, the rainfall in the morning and then clearing very quickly. You will be enjoying that sunshine as well as the south coast. Highs of 16 degrees under sunny skies. Friday, we still do have a chance of showers with windy conditions, but this weekend's looking pretty nice. Sunshine across the board, highs to 15 degrees during the day, but at night, you'll feel the chill in the air dropping down to 5 degrees. A very nice artistic shot from Lynn looking out at the clouds last night as the sun was setting in Vernon. That is lovely. Thank you, Christy. Well done, Lynn. Great last name, too. All right, a big night for a shoe swap couple at the Elton John concert in Vancouver last night. Ron Baudouin and his girlfriend Amanda Grace Leslie from Sycamus had front row seats for the final of three nights for the music superstar at Rogers Arena. And it was when Sir Elton started singing your song during the encore that 
Ron made his move. Yep, Ron got down on one knee and popped the question. Bystanders cheering. Amanda, of course, gave him the answer he was hoping for. Ron says the proposal was a last-minute decision, and he had the ring made that very day. He handed his phone to a stranger to shoot the whole thing, and it turned out to be actor Neil McDonough, known for his roles on Arrow and The Flash. I'd say things worked out pretty well for him. <laughs> Planning ahead with a little lighted box, yeah. too? What's like, that all about? Man, well done. Yeah. Congratulations. And here's Squire. All right, Squire, bring it. All right, I will. Uh, after Brock Besser was hit from behind during that game against Ottawa the other night, Canucks coach Travis Green and even the players on the Canucks didn't seem as outraged as the fans were. That's because the game was in Abbotsford, wasn't televised, and therefore the Canucks bench did not have instant access to any video of what happened. But now that Travis Green has seen how Chris Tierney hit Besser and caused a concussion, He's understandably not very happy about it. I will say I don't like the hit at all. It was, I think it was a dirty hit. Uh, I don't like that our, we're missing one of our marquee players. And that was on me yesterday. I should have explained it a little better uh, than I did. We all thought Brock was fine. Uh, sometimes there's a hit and you're like, okay, is he, is he down? Is he out? Is he hurt? Um, I want a team that sticks up for each other. Uh, but he, he also played, played the power play, felt fine. I think he even made a, a physical hit down in the corner where he, and got a breakaway uh, and didn't start feeling it, feeling off till later in the game. The Canucks are at Rogers Arena tonight against Ottawa again. Of course, Besser's not playing, neither is Tierney. Uh, Elias Pettersson won't play, Bo Horvat will, JT Miller is supposed to play, so is Quinn Hughes, likely to play, and Nikolai Godolbin will as well. Now, during the preseason, Godolbin hasn't exactly been lighting it up, and he is likely one of those guys Travis Green has been talking about, guys who have to show something this week. Well, he talked to me, yeah, and he's just said you gotta just find your game and play good because uh, I do work hard, but you know, didn't wasn't flashy enough, I guess. Well, he's he's been a little bit quiet. I haven't seen a lot offensive stuff from him, and I'm I'm not expecting him to uh, run over people or be, be some physical force on the ice. But I do believe he's working harder. Uh, but I think he's had a quiet camp, and. That's, I think that's honest and fair to say. I think he'd probably agree with it. After being cut by the Oakland Raiders at the end of the preseason, tight end Luke Wilson, who is from Ontario, is back with the Seattle Seahawks. He was a Seahawk for five years before he left for Detroit and then Oakland. Wilson had worked out for some other teams in recent weeks after being cut by Oakland, and he was actually at the San Francisco airport heading to another workout when the Seahawks gave him a call. We were boarding, and uh, I got the call from my agent and told me to. So I walked over two terminals and flew to Seattle instead. This was yesterday? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of, it was. So they just called you yesterday and told you that? Yeah, it was a uh, pretty wild 24 hours, man. It may have been wild, but it was a lot better than the frustrating three weeks he spent on the sidelines after Oakland released him. It was the first time since he was drafted by the Seahawks in 2013 that Luke Wilson had been looking for work in the NFL. 
but it was strange, man, when you go from six years of, uh, you know, being kind of a lock on those days. And I got a new appreciation for a lot of those guys who are uh, kind of sitting and, and waiting to see if their phone's going to ring. Um, it was definitely not an enjoyable time. Let's put it that way. Not enjoyable. The question, of course, is can Wilson still be the dependable backup tight end he was for Seattle between 2013 and 2017? It's a good question because I think in my head versus the general perception, it might be a little different. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that I'm still moving and, and, and running pretty well and just a couple years uh, wiser. But I think the perception is that I'm a couple years older. It's one of those things where uh, I've got... I think a lot to prove now, you know, to everybody in this building and in uh, the league. And I've got an opportunity, so that's really all I can ask for. Fiji and Uruguay today. Here is the try of the game. Santiago Arata, who is five foot eight. And I know I've played rugby. When you're the small guy, you do run fast away from big guys. Wow. And he ran all the way, made the moves, and Uruguay pulled the upset. One of the reasons they pulled the upset, Fiji couldn't kick. They missed so many converts. 30-27 to 27 for Uruguay. That's, Canada tomorrow, just after midnight, they get close to get going. That's incredible. What a win. Yes, it that. is. It's like a trip back in time. Metro Vancouver has a brand new vinyl pressing plant. Music to the ears of artists and audiophiles who consider records the preferred format. Vinyl never really disappeared, even after the digital revolution. And now a local company is dropping the needle for a whole new generation. Ted Trenecki reports. I am a record nerd. I have always loved vinyl records. Start the presses. Breaking news. Vinyl's back. For the first time since 1986, vinyl records are expected to outsell the once mighty CD. The one and only pressing company in BC has been operating in Burnaby since July, the culmination of a lifelong dream. I always thought it would be great to have a company to press records. Uh, being in a band, when you want to get a record pressed, uh, it's this sort of voodoo that happens somewhere else. Clampdown, one of his favorite tracks from The Clash, also seemed like a good name for his company. Clamping down on a heated puck of vinyl can now be done with new purpose-made equipment, and it affords an opportunity to get creative. A lot of bands, if they're doing a run of a thousand, they'll do something like this where they get maybe 200 printed uh, in some kind of a fancy color. There are now a half dozen record stores in East Vancouver alone, and local smaller bands are grooving it. These are some of the first records that were pressed at Clampdown, like Tim the Mute, his uh, new record, Chain Whip, uh, Bridal Party, and uh, Sky Wallace. The revival started about a decade ago, considered then a fad that will fade far from it. It is now the fastest growing physical music medium, surpassing even digital downloads. So vinyl's growing every day. We never stop selling. It's uh, you know, every year the numbers just go higher and higher. Surprisingly, it's the millennial who is opting for analog over digital. No one can quite figure it out, but there are theories. Millennials and younger folks uh, want a connection to their music. So they don't just want the audio, they want to see and feel and touch. And the, especially the 12-inch record gives you the big, beautiful artwork. And it, it gives you something to feel. Now to be sure, vinyl is still very scratchable. But with the right sound system and a newly minted record, there's no sound like it. 
Catch you on Global News.